well, okay. Something special. Something special. Something today. <laughs> Many apologies for the technical glitch there. Third time lucky. Welcome to UK Column News. It's Friday, the 6th of October, 2023, just after one o'clock. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, uh, Brian Gerrish. And by video link, we have Ben Rubin joining us for the first time. So please be gentle. Uh, we're going to get uh, started today with uh, Rishi Sunak uh, and, uh, well, here's Mr. Zelensky. Uh, they were meeting together at the European Political Community meeting in Grenada, in Grenada, sorry, in Spain. Yesterday, uh, this is, uh, a, well, part of it was a small group uh, meeting with uh, the Italy Prime Minister, Maloney, uh, to tackle illegal migration. But as well as that, as you can see on screen, he was talking to Zelensky because, of course, uh, new aid allocations for Ukraine were announced, uh, £34 million uh, for the United Nations and charities providing shelter and warm winter clothing, £10 million for household electricity, uh, following Russian attacks on Ukraine's critical energy infrastructure. And then the fourth, get you ready for it, loan guarantee, Brian, of $500 million has been dispersed via the World Bank to make sure that uh, the government of Ukraine, Ukraine can provide life-saving winter support payments to 3 million uh, households in Ukraine. So basically, we are funding the Ukrainian government at the moment. Uh, well, com completely, and certainly in American press, it's freely admitted now that it's the American state payer that is allowing the whole of the Ukrainian state to function, because without the American money, they couldn't be paying daily salaries of public uh, servants, and uh, they, they certainly couldn't be, um, um, sorry, Ukraine couldn't be functioning as a country without that American money. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on to what uh, they were talking about with respect to child trafficking. And Rishi was saying levels of illegal migration to the mainland Europe are the highest they've been in nearly a decade, with thousands of people dying at sea, propelled by people smugglers. The situation is both immoral and unsustainable. Uh, these issues transcend national borders and require creative Europe-wide solutions. So we're going to get back at Europe to solve this problem. Uh, and that's why I'll be discussing with my fellow leaders at the European Political Community Summit in Spain. And of course, that was yesterday. But look, we'll just make the point. Uh, they're suddenly on this bandwagon. Why now? Uh, because we've made this point many times. But over the years, uh, well, here's a Telegraph article. Ukrainian children will be allowed to come to Britain unaccompanied. Uh, but for example, uh, children coming unaccompanied to the UK over the years have gone missing out of the care and the asylum-seeking system uh, very, very quickly. This has been understood since 2012. Uh, and it's not something that, well, it's, it shouldn't be something that uh, Rishi feels the need to gain political points uh, for uh, this particular moment in time. It's something that's been going on for many, many years. And of course, big profits being made as a result. So I'm a little bit uh, skeptical about uh, the sincerity of Rishi Sunak on this issue. Well, I, I, can't, I can't say I find him sincere at all, Mike. But the other thing we will keep stressing to our audience is that if we look at worldwide migration, this is something that was planned. And uh, uh, Peter Sutherland, the former uh, um, official for migration in the, in the UN, made the statement that more mass migration was necessary to break down the homogeneity of nation states. And he was particularly talking about Europe, but of course we're seeing it happening worldwide. This is not an accident. Um, well, what else can we say about Zelensky? Clearly he's uh, at the EU and he's begging 
um, but it seems that he's not doing so well. Now, I'm taking this image at face value. It might have been doctored, it might have not, uh, but his, uh, his biography is uh, in trouble because it uh, was originally priced apparently at 30 um, Ukrainian Avania, but uh, it's now dropped to two. And uh, this really is uh, a great graphic for signaling the fall of Zelensky as slowly but surely he's rejected by more European countries and slowly but surely he's told there's no more ammunition, there's no more money, there's no more funding. And of course, Europe is uh, very frightened at the moment that uh, the Americans are not going to find the big funding um, packet for Ukraine. And that is ultimately going to lead to a very fast collapse of uh, Ukraine as a country. So we're in interesting times. But if I just bring in um, the uh, report here from Reuters, obviously saying that he's arriving in Spain, you've already covered that. We'll put a bit of uh, video in to make it interesting. But this was an absolute begging uh, mission. He's after more weapons. He's after more money because he wants to continue the war in Ukraine running. Uh, but he's also mentioned that he wants to run a war against Iran and Syria. And if we look at some of his comments, uh, we can start to really wonder who this man is. Our joint goal is to ensure the security and stability of our common European home. Now, I think in that, that uh, uh, comment, he's reacting to the fact that some members of the European Commission have promised him um, rapid access to the European Union, but many other officials are actually uh, suggesting that it's not going to come that quickly. Apologies for the graphics there. Uh, it went on to say, we're working together with partners on enhancing the European security architecture, particularly regional security. Ukraine has substantial proposals in this regard. We will pay special attention to the Black Sea region, as well as our joint efforts to strengthen global food security and freedom of navigation. Now, I'd just like to pick up on this Black Sea thing. And uh, let's do something which, of course, the BBC will never do, which is take a quick look at the organisations that are really deeply involved in politics in Ukraine. This is one of them, Apora. And uh, if we have a look, it's non-governmental, non-partisan. And uh, what is it doing? It's working in elections, parliamentarianism, uh, education, joint ownership, energy efficiency, self-government. It's everywhere, but it's developing society to whose benefit doesn't really say. Uh, more than 17 years have passed. Uh, and if we really say, if we come to who has created this, we're supposed to believe that in 2005, some students got together. They decided they were going to create change in the social political system. And now they've become immensely powerful. So if we have a look at some of the agencies and supporters here, um, support, USAID, Council of Europe Office, uh, European Commission, the Black Sea Trust, which I was particularly interested in, Bank Group, uh, Delegation of the European Union to Ukraine, British Embassy. And if we have a look at the right of the screen, a whole lot of other organisations all linked together and a lot of talk about social and economic research and reform, but to whose benefit. If we look at the Black Sea Trust itself, um, it says it fosters a vigilant civil society, the key to democratic process, social advancement, 
and conflict re resolution. Should we believe this? Who is GMF? Well, this is the meat of the subject uh, because we're looking at the German Marshall Plan here. And if you don't know about this, a little bit of information on screen about its uh, funding in 1972. But this is also a non-partisan policy organization committed to the idea that the United States and Europe are stronger together. And uh, it was fun, uh, founded by Guido Goldman. Uh, you can have a look at that for yourself. But what we're really showing here is that uh, somebody is driving change in society. Principles of democracy, human rights, international cooperation, transatlantic interests. So, you know, the Americans are fully behind this. And there's a the little bit of history about how this came about. And uh, if we put a bit more meat on the bones, this is more work by uh, the German Marshall Fund engaging Central Europe, uh, empowering civil society to protect, revitalize and renew democracy at the heart of Europe. And uh, if you put more detail in there, you can have a look at this. But uh, uh, we've got key words, democratic resilience and revival, media pluralism, electoral integrity, rule of law, education, citizen participation, and then in comes the European Union and NATO. So this isn't a benign organization. This is very much supporting American, NATO and uh, uh, European <coughs> politics. But everything is talking about change. And if we look at the people behind it, we have a mixture of venture capitalists, uh, politicians. We've got JP Morgan. We've got the media with the New York Times. And uh, if I just quickly follow through here, uh, United Airlines, uh, we've got uh, the chairman himself for the Marshall Fund of the, of the United States. And I just picked out this lady to emphasize how the network goes on. So this is a media network, which I'd looked at uh, many years ago, reimagining what is possible, inclusive and equitable societies, uh, reimagining capitalism, and again, we're to believe that this lady uh, stood up to create this group, which is, uh, which is pushing for major social and economic change, not only in Ukraine, but in Europe itself. So what am I saying to the audience? The war in Ukraine is what it appears to be on the surface, but underneath we can see very powerful institutions driving a major change on the back of what's happening. Okay, thank you. So let's uh, come back to the UK then and welcome Ben Rubin to the program. And Ben, we're going to talk about Chris Whitty initially. Indeed. And thank you uh, for welcoming me. It's fantastic to be here. Chris Whitty is back, the Chief Medical Officer for England and one of the leading voices of the UK government COVID programme has been back in the headlines over the past 10 days as one of the main spokesmen for an 18 month national conversation with the public to shape future use of health data by the NHS. Uh, as you'd expect, this is presented as a kind, cuddly, open-ended, two-way dialogue between the NHS and the citizens who fund it, i.e. us lot. Uh, they're spending £2 million on it. It's slated to take 18 months. 
the way that it's been positioned is that this will actually have an impact on government policy. But actually, if you understand anything about recent government policy, patient data is right at the centre of it, and they're going to progress with their plans regardless of what public feedback is from this programme, I think it's fair to say. Um, sharing our most sensitive data is a prerequisite of all of the existing NHS strategies for service delivery over the next decade. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely embedded into everything. Uh, Witty actually goes on the record in the Times recently to tell us that the NHS indeed has a responsibility to use data to improve individual patient care, its own effectiveness, and to support research. This idea that the NHS is in fact a platform enabling the pharmaceutical industry to develop new technologies and new drugs is right at the heart of what this government has been doing. Uh, he also goes on to add, really interestingly, that when we withhold our data from the NHS, this can only reduce the effectiveness of care for us and others now and medical advances for others in the future which if you remember the COVID messaging is actually very similar and they're using the same ling linguistic tricks to the idea that if you don't take your vaccine, then you might end up killing me or you kill someone's granny. And they're, they're, it's a guilt trip, essentially. And they're already laying that groundwork in the way that they're talking about this program, despite the fact that they're about to embark on a completely open-ended 18-month, £2 million public conversation that Witty is out there talking about. Um, more on this, interestingly, because a big component of the NHS strategy is what's known as the Federated Data Platform. And this is a, a really ambitious and costly program, which is designed to pull together all of the different data sources that exist across the health system. And there are thousands, potentially, of different databases, different bits of technology, the patient data exists on across the whole of the NHS. Some of that's really old, like really, really old from the 90s and sometimes even earlier. Some of it's really up to date. And essentially their plan is to bring all of that stuff together into a single platform and they're going to spend potentially up to £480 million doing that over the next four to five years. So again, having said that they are open to discussion about what's going to happen with data inside the NHS, they've actually already put aside half a billion pounds of taxpayer money to build a data platform. And it looks like, based on things that are being dripped into the press at the moment, that that's going to be given to a consortium bid that was put forward by two American technology companies. The first one is Accenture. And Accenture formerly known as Anderson Consulting, uh, for those of you who remember Arthur Anderson, which collapsed in the Enron scandal in the early 2000s. So Accenture is actually a rebadged, rebranded name for Anderson Consulting. And it's still a major provider of UK government services. And it's also, interestingly, a strategic partner to the World Economic Forum. Uh, and they're in, in the driving seat to pick up the development of a new data platform. And obviously, that's fantastic for the UK government because the life sciences vision from 2021, of which a single integrated data platform is a core component, is itself a World Economic Forum aligned document. It uses the term build back better on its cover. 
and also in the opening statement signed by Boris Johnson, who, as we probably all remember, was the UK Prime Minister at the time. So Accenture being a, a WEF strategic partner, helping the UK government to implement a WEF-aligned healthcare strategy makes a lot of sense for them to do that. Um, the other company, I mentioned there are two companies involved in this, the first being Accenture. The second is called Palantir, uh, which you may well have heard of. They are um, talked about quite a lot, and uh, they are an extre extremely interesting and shadowy organization. First of all, the name is, uh, is the, the company is named after the magical object, this kind of sphere, this orb um, that was used in Lord of the Rings by Saruman, which allowed him to peer into the minds and the visions of other people, which I think in itself, given what this company is into, is a, is a particularly interesting choice of name for them to make. Um, beyond that, it was founded by uh, the, the founder of PayPal, and the first outside investor in Facebook, this gentleman here called Peter Thiel, and he started Palantir in 2003. And it was actually initially funded by a CIA-controlled CIA investment fund called InQtel. Yeah, so this is actually backed up by U.S. Um, uh, uh, intelligence agency money at its inception. And it now works with a whole slew of different uh, private sector organizations, people like Amazon, IBM, a lot of companies that are also World Economic Forum strategic partners, Palantir is working with them. And it continues to work with government clients like the um, Center for Disease Control in the US, also the US military, uh, um, the US intelligence agencies. Uh, its, its technology has been used to coordinate drone strikes, for example. So just the type of people that you want operating inside the health system. And in fact, Palantir was originally introduced into the UK government by a former head of MI6, so a chap called Sir John Sawyers, in 2019, while Palantir was, was touting for new business inside the health system, made the introduction to the Cabinet Office and facilitated Palantir's entry into the NHS. Uh, in 2020, they very famously sealed a deal to support the UK's COVID vaccine rollout over £60 watermelon cocktails, so very expensive watermelon cocktails, um, and doing so without a competitive tender. And, and they seem to be doing this a lot. Um, they are uh, have almost unfettered access to some of the most complicated and high-value questions that are being posed by the British health system. They're making a huge amount of money from it. So the CEO, Alexander Karp, uh, back in 2020, so that first year that they started working with the NHS, he was actually the highest paid chief executive on earth. He was paid $1.1 billion in compensation. This is a man who is now circling around the UK health system, a publicly funded health service, a man earning who earned in that year $1.1 billion personally. Absolutely remarkable. Uh, they've done an exceptionally good job if you think of it in that sense, like if you want to open up a market inside the health system, one of the best ways to do that, one of the most established ways to do that is to hire people from the health system to come and work with you. So they had a woman called Indra Joshi, who was the former head of artificial intelligence at NHSX. NHSX was the UK digital innovation lab, which has been disbanded now and um, consumed by firstly NHS Digital, which was then itself consumed into NHS England. There's a whole bunch of 
um, really complicated operating model and kind of bureaucratic uh, developments that have gone on inside the NHS over the past few years. Um, I think a lot of that is, is probably done on purpose to make it difficult for people like us to talk about it and to keep track of what these people are doing and where they're going to. But Indra Joshi, former head of AI at NHSX, was hired by Palantir and is now working on the development of the NHS as a strategic client for, for Palantir. Uh, and they have continued to sign a succession of increasingly valuable deals with the NHS. Uh, and they are doing it in a way that is largely uncontested. And as I understand it from my contacts inside the inside the health system, there are a whole bunch of things being done by bureaucrats to make it really difficult for people to even compete with Palantir. For example, uh, someone I know who runs an independent technology company put in a competitive bid against Palantir, and then all of a sudden they were told that they needed to have £20 million cash in the bank in order to be considered for the contract, which was not in the original briefing document. Mm. So someone inside the health service is extremely interested in embedding Palantir into operations and building what they describe as the future operating system for how healthcare is delivered in this country. Ben, thank you, thank you very much for that. Uh, one of the things in my head was, as you were talking about the companies emerging into our, our health system via the NHS, because this, we could say it's fascism in a way, but it's deeper than that because we've got intelligence services. We've effectively got the security services tied up in corporations coming in as one organisation and uh, most of the public clearly totally un unaware this is happening. Yes. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for that report. Okay, uh, let's move on to censorship then. And uh, well, it's that time of year again, and the UK column is once again uh, being approached by NewsGuard for comment into, about our shockingly bad reporting and uh, articles that are all completely false. Uh, and so we have to, uh, they're expecting us to respond to their questions. Um, which, of course, we're not going to do. Now, what are NewsGuard? Well, they're part of the disinformation industrial complex. They're there to uh, try to develop or decide who is trustworthy source and who is not. So if we just bring this back on screen again for a second, uh, they are saying they're transparent. Uh, they're providing transparent, accountable trust ratings for thousands of news outlets. Uh, they are going to make AI safe. I'm glad to know that somebody's going to make AI safe, but they are going to make AI safe. So they're clearly an extremely impressive organization. Uh, and as well as that, uh, they are saying that engagement soared for disinformation sources on X, formerly Twitter, uh, following a, a change by Musk. Uh, so they're very much complaining about that, which then brings me on to the fact that Elon Musk himself is now uh, being uh, sort of attacked, shall we say, by the Securities Exchange Commission. This is uh, around his purchase of Twitter uh, which they are investigating. Now, he is uh, has appeared twice before hearings already uh, to investigate this. Um, they are concerned that he said some things at the time which may have uh, been outside the rules uh, with respect to mergers and acquisitions. Um, but uh, he's refusing to go and uh, see them for a third time. He's saying, sorry, guys, I've been to see you already. You've asked your questions. That's it. I've got more important things to do. Um, they're now asking a court to require him to appear uh, in front of in front of them, so that, so the pressure uh, on him continues to rise. Um, but I'm leaving the best for last here because uh, in the last couple of days in Warsaw, 
the Human Dimension Conference 2023 has been held uh, and was attended by representatives of the British government. And uh, they were very keen to make sure that they criticized Russia and Belarus in particular with respect to media freedom. So I just want to bring this on screen and read it out because uh, it, you could lose your lunch over it, frankly. Media freedom is essential to democracy, says Anna Jackson, the first secretary political to the UK delegation at the OSCE. Media freedom is essential to democracy and democracy to media freedom. Legislation can target any media voice. She's talking about Russia and Belarus here. Legislation in Russia and Belarus can target any independent independent voice, particularly critics of the government or Russia's illegal war in Ukraine. Journalists have fled or face imprisonment. Many journalists and media outlets are destined, uh, designated extremist. Anyone who administers social media networks or communication channels for listed so-called extremists can be detained and can face serious charges, even of terrorism. And if you've been paying attention to my coverage of the online safety bill for about the last three years, you'll know that this is exactly what Britain is doing to British journalists and British independent voices and British social media companies. And for the British government, therefore, to throw these accusations out at Russia and Belarus is sheer projection, number one. Uh, the hypocrisy is off the charts. Uh, I don't even know where to start with it. Uh, you got any thoughts? Well, it's... it's it does become difficult to comment on this, Mike, because the hypocrisy is so blatant as we're seeing free speech absolutely closed down in UK. We've got our officials on the world platform accusing others of doing what they themselves are doing. Yes. OK. If Now, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, uh, you could head over to community.ukcolumn.org. You can join us as a member there. That is a massive boost for us. Uh, it keeps us going. Uh, and uh, the community is there to help each other uh, use the material that we provide, hopefully. Uh, and to make friends. Indeed. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column Shop, and we will mention something more about that in one second. Uh, but please do share material on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, I just want to say that available for pre-order now, we haven't got them in stock yet. There'll be another week or two. Uh, the MHRA, not for not fit for purpose t-shirts are on the website. They're available for you now if you want to at least to pre-order, as I say, and we'll get those out as quickly as possible. Um, and then I just want to mention a symposium that's taking place uh, on Tuesday, the 17th of October at ukcolumn.org slash live. It'll begin at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, the 17th of October. This is on 5G. Uh, and so let's just have a look at who is going to be speaking at that. Uh, we have uh, Igor uh, Believ, who's professor, uh, head of Department of Radiobiology, Cancer Research Institute uh, in, in the Slovak Academy of Science in Slovakia. Uh, we have uh, Leonard Hardell, oncologist and epidemiologist, former professor at Arevo University Hospital. Uh, we have Klaus Buchner, former professor at Technical University Munich, former member of the European Parliament. Uh, we have uh, Frank Clegg, CEO of Canadians for Safe Technology, former president of Microsoft Canada, uh, member of the Board of Directors of the Environmental Health Trust, uh, Ivan Vilibor Sincic, uh, member of the European Parliament from Croatia, and uh, Monica Nielsen, uh, who's helping organize this, uh, director of the Swedish Radiation Protection Foundation in Sweden. Uh, so this, uh, the eyes were 
dotted and T's crossed uh, when I was in Sweden at the weekend. Uh, but that'll be on the 17th of this month. And I just encourage everybody to come and watch. Highly uh, qualified people, extremely well informed. So, yeah, Mike, I think this is going to be a really, really interesting debate. Uh, and I uh, want to remind everybody again, please ask your Member of Parliament to attend the debate on excess deaths at Parliament on the 20th of October 2023. This is Andrew Bridgen's debate. Uh, we're fully expecting, and he's fully, ex fully expecting, that almost nobody, no other MP will turn up. And it's really incumbent, incumbent upon us all to um, encourage, shall we say, um, our, MPs. our MPs to attend that. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Uh, well, uh, a little bit of comment on some emails. Switzerland is still very much uh, an in-topic, and I've had an email from Mark who says, following the, the segment last Wednesday's news concerning the Swiss justice system, uh, he, he had read this article in a local Swiss newspaper today, so Mark lives in Switzerland himself, and it's about a Confederation employee who contested his dismissal uh, he was dismissed by the Federal Administrative Court. Uh, that, sorry, that, um, that, that challenge to the dismissal was dismissed by the Federal Administrative Court. Uh, he'd criticised Burns' anti-COVID measures on LinkedIn and targeted his colleagues, apparently, in insulting and misogynistic tweets, alerted his superiors, fired him with immediate effect, um, but uh, the administrative court rules that his duty of loyalty took precedence over his freedom, his freedom of expression. And uh, so this is another um, short email telling us uh, that all is not well in Switzerland and uh, you're certainly not going to be speaking out about what's happening. Now, of course, uh, we mentioned a little while ago problems uh, in Glastonbury, when locals challenged the uh, in-post Green Mayor on matters uh, to do with 15-minute cities. And uh, I've just had a little e email exchange sent through to me here. Uh, let's animate the mayor as she was having a rant, uh, which included criticism of the UK column. Uh, but uh, the mayor had written back to a particular individual uh, saying, thank you for your patience. Uh, I, I think there's a little bit of a Freudian slip there. It's been an incredibly busy summer as a councillor and as a mayor. And as it is unpaid, I do have work to do. Your conversations are interesting and I will find time to engage. Uh, but they are not of Glastonbury importance. Unlike, say, pharmacies closing, mental health support or housing. So please, I will answer in my own time. And the individual got back to the mayor and said, I was under the impression that the Glastonbury Green Council had issued a climate emergency and was helping implement and voice the net zero agenda on the community. This seems pretty pressing to me and worthy of challenging. And uh, uh, they, they go on to say, I'm curious and concerned due to your apparent readiness to use stigmatizing and divisive language with anyone who... Uh, with anyone with differing political views to your own. As you may be aware, these comments could have a devastating effect on anybody already mentally challenged. I worked in the mental health and homeless sector for many years and know only too well the mental fragility and precarious nature of these particular client groups. So it's very clear that the locals in Glastonbury are simply not taking this uh, uh, very heavy-handed approach from the mayor and are challenging her. Now, uh, I mentioned the other day, petition the king, and I had a very nice email back from Graham Wood, 
to thank the UK column for the report, but also to say it had clearly raised interest in the site. I did promise I would put up more information about the site. So here it is, petition the king, say no to the World Health Organization power grab. And if you want to get more details there, uh, you can have a look. But uh, what it says is we're facing an imminent threat to our liberty. Why? Because our government has in principle already agreed to the pandemic preparedness treaty from the WHO being uh, proposed by the World Health Organization. This treaty is aimed at uh, centralizing the WHO's control over health emergencies, uh, including pandemic. So there's a lot more detail. I think this is a really good um, initiative, getting people to go to the King direct to say we're not happy. And the cards mean that this can all be done in a very measured and simple way. So do go and have a look at that website and see what you think. Now, the other thing that was sent through to me uh, last night was this, which I found very interesting. This is a website which calls itself the real left. And I understand that this is about uh, people who regard themselves as left wing in politics, but they see that uh, the left wing of politics is falling apart and failing to challenge what's actually happening. Sorry, let's just move on through, through to here. And what they had actually done is sent an open letter to the Communication Workers Union. And uh, this is talking about the union's support for COVID vaccines. Uh, so they'd sent a really comprehensive letter here with their concerns. Uh, just put this paragraph, we're concerned because the CWU are not health experts and vaccines are not the union's area of expertise and the CWU is taking a risk endorsing them and therefore unfortunately taking a risk with the health of CWU members. And uh, there was a little embedded headline here saying that we believe CWU's endorsement of these experimental vaccines could be interpreted as conflicting with the following CWU health and safety policy. So they're clearly taking them to task I'm going to skip through this, but it's a little animated clip to show that the letter is extremely comprehensive and they've included a lot of references with information. Yellow card getting a mention here, UK CV family, uh, but it goes on and gives a lot of information and resources to support what they're saying. So you might have a look at that, but interesting to see people who regard themselves as left wing now stepping forward to challenge this agenda as well. Okay, let's uh, move on to Lord Finkelstein. Uh, here he is. Uh, he was uh, speaking following the Tory party conference uh, a couple of days ago, and he was talking about the need for the Conservative Party to appeal to a broad base, not to a fringe. Uh, he was being asked about uh, the types of policies that the Tory party was, uh, was, was sort of attaching itself to. And he said, we can't, this is a paraphrase, it's not, I can't remember the exact words he used, but he said, we can't promote outright conspiracy theories. He certainly used that phrase, outright conspiracy theories, such as 15-minute cities. Uh, and uh, so I just wanted to uh, make the point to Lord Finkelstein, of course, 15-minute cities are not a conspiracy theory. There are many, many organizations, for example, uh, this one, uh, the International Workplace Group, talking about it, the 15-minute city, why it's a good thing. There are many, many serious organizations campaigning, uh, proposing this idea, uh, and including many of the internationalist organizations like the Global Parliament for Mayors and other 
uh, cities and C40 cities and these types of organizations. Um, so uh, just to, to uh, give an impression of how uh, the policies that we've been seeing, seeing rolled out in the UK and particularly in Wales are internationalist in nature. Here is uh, the report from NL Times, the Netherlands Times, uh, saying that Amsterdam is now preparing to lower the speed limit across the city to 30 kilometers an hour. So that's equivalent to 20 miles an hour uh, speed limit. So uh, Wales, of course, the pilot for that in the UK, we've got 20 mile an hour zones in many of our towns and cities now, but in a, on a kind of limited basis. Uh, but this is a citywide uh, blanket equivalent to 20 mile an hour zone in Amsterdam. Um, now let's move on to uh, James Kuriaki in the uh, United Nations. Uh, and he was talking about sustainable development goals. Uh, he's saying uh, this couple of days ago, as the Secretary General emphasized that the SDG Summit political declaration provides a seven-year roadmap, we must target our policies and investments on enabling accelerated progress across the goals because accelerationism is at the heart of all this. And he went on to say, uh, and towards countries and people furthest behind, the second committee discussions, as the second committee discussions begin, I want to focus my statement on finance, climate, technology and gender. And I just wanted to highlight this because really in one sentence here, he's giving away the policy objectives, uh, the key policy areas uh, of the UK, at least as far as the international community is concerned. Uh, and as we know, COP26 wasn't really about climate change. It was about new financial initiatives, uh, climate uh, technology, AI, this type of thing, all linked with climate change. Uh, and gender, of course, is the big issue that's being exported uh, to every part of the world, because that seems to be what the rules-based international order is all about. Uh, indeed. So let's focus in a bit on some of the uh, key strategic policies of the rules-based international order, because these are really the areas that uh, we feel we should focus on, and also the audience should be watching very carefully. Climate, climate change is is a lead now with the net zero driving so many policies in UK and worldwide. What's it about? It's about fear and control of the nations. Uh, we've also got the big farmer agenda, also about fear and control, but this time of our, our own bodies. We're not allowed to uh, be ourselves. Our bodies are really being owned by these conglomerates. Uh, the money supply and control of money Ultimately, that leads to total control of individuals, um, total control, so important that we stay focused on what this is. A massive attack on cons the constitution and the system of justice. And this is really nation states and their supporting institutions being destroyed. And the final one, behavioral change. Uh, and this is absolute control of our minds and of course, the minds of our children, the terrors of 2023, where little girls and little boys are being told that they don't know what sex they are. Um, so basically, these are the key policies. These are the policies needing exposure, and uh, we should refuse to accept them at uh, every opportunity. Now, I've picked up on this uh, report by Global Research. Is Trudeau selling out Canada to the World Economic Forum? Not only is the article uh, good, but there's a little video clip, which we're just about to have a look at, which really sets the scene um, for how politicians are bought by these rules-based international order 
bodies such as the World Economic Forum, and it demonstrates how politicians are then controlled and moulded in order to get the rules-based agenda and policies in place, uh, dismissing any requirements of what the nation state itself needs. So let's have a look at this little video clip. Welcome back to Street Politics Canada. In August 2019, Trudeau's environment and climate change agenda led by Minister Catherine McKenna at the time made a controversial decision. They allocated nearly half a million dollars of taxpayer money to the World Economic Forum, a private international organization. According to documents obtained through an order paper question, ECCC gave $493,937 to the WEF to produce a report making the economic case for their climate change agenda. Specifically, the stated goal of this funding was to enable the WEF to produce and disseminate a report that will establish the business and economic case for safeguarding nature. The report was aimed at senior decision-makers in governments and businesses who have the influence and ability to shift business-as-usual approach. This clearly showed that the intent was to influence policymakers and push their climate agenda, rather than produce an unbiased analysis. Six months later, in February 2020, the WEF delivered the requested report. As one would expect given who funded it, the report unsurprisingly concluded things that supported the Liberals' positions. It sourced papers favoring a carbon tax and stated that what is required is bold policy ambition and decisive political leadership to signal that business as usual is no longer viable. Given that a carbon tax was a core part of the Liberals' climate plan, this aligned perfectly with their agenda. But some saw it as problematic that taxpayers' money was used to fund a private organization to produce a report advocating for the government's predetermined policy aims. It raised questions about whether this was an appropriate use of public money or just an exercise in propaganda. Additionally, despite being published in mid-2020 when the pandemic was already underway, the WEF report also took the opportunity to advocate for governments to use their fiscal recovery programs to reset the economy on more resilient, equitable, and sustainable terms. This furthered the narrative that climate action needed to be a central part of pandemic recovery plans. Just a few months later, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau walked straight into the WEF open arms. In December 2020, he announced a significant multi-year increase to Canada's carbon tax, raising it from $30 per tonne to $170 per tonne by 2030. This move aligned perfectly with the recommendations of the very report his government had paid half a million dollars to produce. So a very informative uh, little analysis in that clip. And uh, of course, it shows us how the system works at the politicians uh, in the pockets of organizations such as the World Economic Forum to do their bidding. Uh, let's have a little look at how um, um, President Putin viewed uh, Trudeau and his in-house speaker. Все аплодируют, аплодировали этому нацисту. И особенно президент Украины, в жилах которых, которого течет еврейская кровь, евреи по национальности, стоит и аплодирует нацисту. Если спикер канадского парламента говорит о том, что во время Второй мировой войны этот канадско-украинский или украино-канадский нацист сражался против русских во время Второй мировой войны, он не может не понимать, что он сражался на стороне Гитлера, а не на стороне его собственной родины, Канады. Или был фашистским коллаборационистом. В любом случае, сражался на стороне нацистских войск. 
Допустим, он этого не знает. Я ни в коем случае не хочу обидеть чувство канадского народа. Мы относимся к Канаде, несмотря ни на что, с уважением, особенно к людям. Но если он не знает, что во время войны против России сражался Гитлер и его приспешники, то он идиот. Он значит, просто, он, значит, просто в школе не учился, не имеет элементарных знаний. А если он знает, что этот человек сражался на стороне Гитлера и называет его героем Украины и героем Канады, то он негодяй. Или так, или так. Well, what, what can we make out of that? Obviously, the uh, subject was the Nazi there speaking to uh, uh, Trudeau and, and his politicians. Uh, but my point on this, if that was allowed to happen, and uh, Trudeau is fully in bed with the World Economic Forum, it seems to me the World Economic Forum must also support this type of agenda. Uh, but of course, uh, Trudeau threw the speaker under the bus And uh, Putin's reply there is to criticize the speaker and call him ignorant or a bee. And uh, uh, my feeling is that in reality, Putin was really referring to Trudeau himself. Uh, but of course, he couldn't use those words of Trudeau. Of Trudeau and so he's used them of the speaker. Uh, but essentially, nation states no longer formulating their own policy but being controlled behind the scenes and uh, they're capable of doing anything, including these horrific wars overseas. Okay, we're going to move on to uh, Syria. And uh, well, Vanessa, no doubt will have more to say this when she joins us on Monday, but uh, here's a little bit of video of a uh, graduation ceremony at the uh, military officer school in Homs. Uh, this was yesterday. Um, so they were obviously having uh, their passing out ceremony. They're throwing their caps in the air and so on, everybody was extremely happy. And a few seconds after this video was taken, uh, the venue was attacked with drones. Uh, now there are current figures are, uh, what does that say, 89 uh, dead, including 31 women and five children. In fact, since then, it's gone up to six children uh, and 277 wounded. The Syrian government themselves responded immediately. Uh, they attacked Idlib. Um, and uh, they attacked, of course, Jabhat al-Nusra was the main terrorist group, uh, also known as Tahrir al-Sham. Um, so this is what Vanessa was uh, putting out yesterday. Uh, the drones that were used by terrorist groups today to attack the military graduates and families at homes were launched by the terrorist groups in southern Idlib, northern Hama, uh, but the hands of NATO member states, including Turkey, US, UK, facilitated the attack by proxy. Uh, they are the murderers of Syrian people since 2011. Uh, as I say, no doubt she'll have more on that. Some of the video that I've seen of it was absolutely harrowing, and uh, we're not going to show that, but, uh, you know, it's a disgraceful attack. I'll just add, and uh, Zelensky has been stating quite openly that uh, he believes that uh, he should be allowed to attack Iran and Syria. So was this the first of the attacks for that new initiative? question that needs to be asked. Okay, let's uh, bring Ben back to the program. And Ben, what's going on with Birmingham City Council? So um, viewers may well remember, because it's quite fresh, it only happened a few weeks ago, that Birmingham City Council has collapsed owing 
uh, somewhere in the region of three quarters of a billion pounds. Quite a remarkable situation, maybe a glimpse towards what a future Labour government could deliver for us. Who knows? Um, there have been some interesting developments since then. They've had a technocratic ruler essentially imposed on them. There's this gentleman named Max Cooler, who has been sent up to Birmingham by Michael Gove, and he's taken over the council. He describes himself on his LinkedIn profile as a dormant volcano, which I quite like, actually. So I don't know, I might have to steal that at some point. Um, and there has been quite a lot of angst about this. And uh, a really interesting organization has popped up. And there's a lady who works there who's the chief operating officer, who unfortunately her name escapes me. But I wanted to just reference the organization itself because I think it's really, really interesting. Their profile has been increasing quite considerably. I'm just seeing them a lot more on LinkedIn in particular over the past few months. And they're called Democracy Next. And uh, they are uh, another one of these non-governmental, non-partisan organizations. And I think that they fit quite neatly into the NWO Constitution and Justice bucket, which Brian just went through a moment ago, actually. So one of these organizations that's basically designed to re-engineer our society. Essentially, that's what they're looking to do. And they talk about it in the context of democracy. Everything's very fluffy and touchy-feely and the colours are nice and they have these little illustrations that they use. But when you look at who backs them, it is the same people. Actually, if you just go back to the last slide, um, please, thank you. Uh, I jumped the gun with the illustrations reference. Um, but the uh, you look at who backs them, well, it's the Rockefeller Foundation. It's Open Society Foundation, which is George Soros. It's the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a US NGO um, which preoccupies itself with all the same things that the Rockefellers and the Open Society Foundation do. And then also another interesting uh, organization called One Project, who, again, do similar things. They're, they're, there's not a lot of information about them available online, but I think that these are the names that are going to become more prevalent and more visible as this whole thing plays out. And um, as I was just touching on a moment ago, they, they, have a, they have a plan, they have a theory to change our democratic institutions. Apparently, the current electoral paradigm is not good enough for them. Um, and in some ways, I agree with them. So we have elected representatives and parliaments. We have elections and voting. And they see this as leading directly to polarization and confrontation. And they want to move to a new democratic paradigm, the next democratic paradigm, which is about citizen representatives and permanent citizens assemblies, representation by lot, sortition. So they're actually looking to replace voting with a new system that they've developed. And they think that this is going to deliver broad consensus and the ability to find common ground. And I do wonder, like, who actually asked these people to come in and create a new type of democracy? It seems like a remarkably strident and hubristic thing for them to come in and do. Uh, we don't know who they are. Um, they're, they're, they're relatively new. And they're coming at this from this globalist and actually really with Democracy Next, this sort of pan-European worldview. So the founder is, um, uh, uh, is, is operating out of France um, and they have these little cells of people all around continental Europe 
and they seemed to be extremely well prepared to sweep into this situation surrounding Birmingham with a whole bunch of new prepackaged ideas in a way that I think is potentially quite suspicious. So I think we need to keep our eye on democracy next. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. Uh, let's move on to facial recognition. And uh, well, here is the wonderful MP uh, for Croydon South. Uh, he's also police, crime and fire minister. Uh, and uh, that's Chris Philp. Uh, he calls himself a serial entrepreneur. Well, he is a serial entrepreneur in the sense that he's failed a few times because he uh, uh, ran an organization called Clearstone Training and Recruitment Limited, which uh, went bust. He ran the next big thing, Charity, which went bust. But anyway, he's, he's currently Minister for Policing uh, and he's talking about facial recognition. Uh, so he's very keen that the police are able to get access to all kinds of databases. So he, he said at the Policy Exchange a couple of days ago, um, I'm uh, going to be asking police forces to search all of those databases, the police national database, which has custody images, but also other databases like the passport database. And what struck me about this is that, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I've been arguing for quite a long time is that the Data Protection Act and the, the data protection, the requirement to register under that Data Protection Act isn't really about maintaining uh, some kind of standard about how our data is handled. It's about maintaining a register of where certain types of data can be found uh, so that if uh, perhaps the police need to access that in the future, um, they can do so. Uh, but anyway, he's very keen that passport database for facial recognition is handed to the police uh, for live facial recognition purposes. And I just want to mention, you know, no matter what you think about Big Brother Watch, uh, and it may be also receiving money from some of the organizations that Ben was just talking about, uh, but they are running this Stop Facial Recognition campaign. Uh, and there are some uh, useful resources there if anybody wants to get involved in campaigning on this issue. Um, and I strongly suspect that that is an issue that needs to be Absolutely. campaigned upon. So uh, anyway, uh, moving on to the United States now and uh, Donald Trump. Now, he didn't actually say uh, what we're just about to put on screen here, but uh, it's more or less what he said. Uh, see you in court, buddy, because he uh, has decided to finally, after many, many years, uh, to sue uh, Christopher Steele, the former MI6 officer who cr created the dossier, uh, which uh, resulted in the whole Russiagate uh, investigation, which effectively made his presidency uh, a busted flush, as it were. Uh, so this is going to bring a data protection claim against Christopher Steele and his business, Orbis Business Intelligence. Uh, and uh, as, as I said, this has been running since 2017. Now, and I just very briefly want to uh, mention or to highlight this particular, uh, these couple of graphics that we've shown many times. Uh, but you know, this, these are the people that are behind or have been behind the Russiagate uh, saga. Um, Trump uh, has, of course, always denied the claims that, that Steele has put forward. And I mean, the dossier itself is now completely discredited. So uh, this is going to be in the High Court in London on the 16th of October. It's going to be a two-day hearing. Um, people might want to go to that and uh, sit in the public gallery. I suspect it's going to be uh, very interesting. But just to, if we just put that back on screen for a second, uh, we should mention, of course, that many of these people or some of these people are the same people uh, that were pretty much behind the Skripal affair as well in the sense of the promotion of the narrative that uh, Sergei Skripal was poisoned uh, by uh, something that could be wiped off our clothes with uh, baby wipes, according to the chief medical officer of the time. 
Um, so, uh, you know, what can we say? Just remember to end that, of course, the Steele dossier was funded uh, partly by the Democratic National Congress uh, and money from the Hillary Clinton uh, 2016 presidential campaign. So it was dirty from the beginning. And uh, as I said on those graphics, by putting the, the word former in inverted commas, I don't believe that necessarily any of these people uh, are really out of the intelligence no. services. Uh, they've, they've merely gone private, as it were. Yeah, they're still very much in the game. Yes. Okay, well, I think that brings us to the end of today's news. So a lot of information there, but the main point we're making is clearly uh, we're not being governed by a normal government. We've got uh, an alternative power of occupation, which is running the country, and policy is coming from these rules-based international order bodies, such as the World Economic Forum. If you're asking what can we do about this, the answer is something. You must challenge your local council as to what they're doing. You must challenge your local MP. You must stand up and do something. And it's numbers ultimately that will make the difference. We will say thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to Ben Rubin. He will be here with us for extra time in a few minutes. So join us then. But to all our viewers and listeners worldwide, thank you very much for your support. Uh, we will be back at the same time on Monday. Thank you. Bye-bye.